Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Ruth, chapter one, continued. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Then her two sons, Machlon and Kilion, died, leaving Naomi in dire straits and her daughters-in-law's widows. Now, the ancient world of the Middle East was a man's world, and a woman without a husband or sons to care for her and protect her was extremely vulnerable. Yet Naomi was as concerned with the fate of her two widowed daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, as she was despondent over her own situation. Now, a key to taking the book of Ruth in proper perspective is that the book is actually centered on finding a solution for Naomi's problem. Ruth and Orpah were young. They had prospects. So their plight was quite mild and solvable compared to Naomi's. And the quickest and best solution for the two girls was to stay in their home territory of Moab, even as Naomi set out to return to her home in Bethlehem of Judah. Now, we've read the entire first chapter of Ruth, but let's reread a small piece of it and examine it point by point. So, open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1057. And we're going to read a few verses, just 8 through 15 to begin. 8 through 15. Naomi said to her, two daughters-in-law. Each of you, go back to your mother's house. May Adonai show grace to you as you did to those who died, and to me. May Adonai grant you security in the home of a new husband. Then she kissed them, and they began weeping aloud. They said to her, No, we want to return with you to your people. And Naomi said, Go back, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb who could become your husbands? Go back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I were to say, I still have hope. Even if I had a husband tonight and bore sons, would you wait for them until they grew up? Would you refuse to marry just for them? No, my daughters. On your behalf, I feel very bitter that the hand of Adonai has gone out against me. And again they wept out loud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth stuck with her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Go back after your sister-in-law. The first words of this passage are an exhortation by Naomi for these two daughters-in-law of hers, with whom she obviously had a very loving bond and a close relationship, to leave Naomi to her fate and care for them, uh, or rather, and for them then to return home to their Moabite mothers. Okay. And that's so that they could be comforted. 
So they could be cared for in their childhood homes until that day came that the Lord provided new husbands for them. Now, part of this exhortation included a blessing by Naomi that the God of Israel would show the young widow's favor. In fact, the blessings she gave those two girls specifically calls out Yehovah's name. Okay. Now understand that the invocation of Yehovah is of itself interesting because the three women are still in the land of Moab, a place that although foreign for Naomi, a Jewish woman, was native for Orpah and Ruth. Okay. Now it was the general mindset of the people of that era and that culture to see the land attached to their national god or gods in other words a god usually only had a sphere of influence that extended no further than the territory or nation where she he or she was established as the local deity now let me elaborate on that thought just a tad more all right because it helps us to understand so many other passages in the bible and what a huge effect the world and protocol of the gods had upon people's decisions. Chemosh was the chief deity of the, over the land of Moab. Ruth and Orpah were, were born and raised with the understanding that Chemosh held all divine authority over what happened in Moab. Thus, any vow made within his territory, had to invoke his name and authority, or it was ineffective and maybe even invalid. Yet the situation wasn't all that cut and dried. During the time frame of the book of Ruth, Moab was not a sovereign nation. Okay. Moab had been conquered just a few decades earlier by Israel and the Israelite tribes of Reuben and Gad now settled the land of Moab. However, as with all the territories conquered and occupied by the twelve tribes, the area of the Transjordan, Israelite ter territory on the east side of the Jordan River, where the former nation of Moab lay, was, was similar to us looking at the pockmarked landscape of the moon. You know, from a distance, it looks smooth and even homogeneous. But up close, it consists of hundreds of separate craters, slightly separated from one another. At other times, they kind of overlap. Okay? So, like the surface of the moon... The Israelite tribal territories east of the Dead Sea consisted of pockets of Moabites living next to Israelites, and at times they overlapped and even intermingled a little bit. That meant that there was ambiguity over which God ruled where. And the usual solution for the people living there was to worship them all or at the least, show all of them respect. Therefore, we shouldn't take it that because the Hebrew, Naomi, invoked the God of Israel in her blessing, that she did not believe that Chemosh existed. 
Or should we think that the Moabites, Ruth and Orpah, had given up on Chemosh as a result of marrying Jewish men and then worshipped only Yehovah? Bowing down to or invoking the name of different gods at different times according to different situations and exactly where you were standing at the time was usual and normal for the ancient mind and that generally even also included the Hebrews. Well, after blessing her daughters-in-law, they both insisted on following Naomi back to Judah. So Naomi introduces an argument to dissuade them. And the argument essentially is focused on the impossibility of levirate marriage occurring in their situation. Let's let's reacquaint ourselves for just a few minutes with the concept of levirate marriage. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we're going to read verses 5 through 10 where it discusses the subject. Deuteronomy 25, page 224 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. If brothers live together and one of them dies childless, his widow is not to marry someone unrelated to him. Her husband's brother is to go to her and perform the duty of a brother-in-law by marrying her. The first child she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be eliminated from Israel. If the man does not wish to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow is to go up to the gate to the leaders and say, My brother-in-law refuses to raise up for his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother for me. The leaders of his town are to summon him and speak to him. And if, on appearing before them, he continues to say, I don't want to marry her, then his brother's widow is to approach him in the presence of the leaders, pull his sandal off of his foot, and spit in his face and say, this is what's done to a man who refuses to build up his brother's family. From that time on, his family is to be known in Israel as the family of the man who had his sandal pulled off. I don't think I can stand that. Can you stand that? So the idea is that a surviving biological brother, or perhaps even a very close relative under certain circumstances, of a man who has died, is to marry his brother's widow. This is particularly the case if this woman had not yet produced sons. And then he's to impregnate her with the intent that the first son she produces will be considered the offspring of the deceased man. Okay? Thus, his family line will continue and several other vital issues will, will all get resolved in this, including giving the widow a son to care for her in her old age, a fulfillment of her duty as a woman by bringing new life into the world, else she might not even feel or be seen that she ever had any real use in this world. 
Also, this allows the essence and character of the deceased man to live on in his son, otherwise that essence would terminate. And also, it provides for the land of the deceased man to be passed along to someone now, his son, who is a member of his own clan and his own tribe, thus that fulfills the requirements of the laws of Moses. That's what happens in all this. Now, the overall concept of leveret marriage was not necessarily a Hebrew invention. However, it was how it was practiced and why it was practiced by the Israelites was indeed uniquely Hebrew. In fact, the custom of leverate marriage was so predominant in Middle Eastern society and also loosely practiced among the very early Hebrews that we actually see an example of it occurring centuries before God pronounced it as law and gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. We find it in Genesis. In Genesis 38.8 Judah said to Onan go and sleep with your brother's wife perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and preserve your brother's line of descent. We covered that story a couple of years ago. And despite the similarity between the term leverate and the name of the priestly tribe Levi, the two are not at all associated. They're not related. Okay? Levirate is a Gentile term. It's taken from the Latin word lever, meaning husband's brother. So you're never going to find those words in the Bible. Now with that understanding of the nature of leverate marriage we can better understand what Naomi had in her mind in this argument that she presented for Ruth and Orpah to go home to their mothers. Okay. Thus in verse 11, Naomi asks rhetorically, Do I still have sons in my womb who can become your husbands? In other words, is the insistence of these two girls that they were going to stick with Naomi coming from their belief, their Middle Eastern belief, that the next logical step for them is leverate marriage since they were childless. Of course, the, explana- uh, the question rather is absurd since Naomi had no other sons. In other words, there were no brothers of the deceased men. And she is far past childbearing years. So to emphasize just how silly it would be for these two girls to harbor such thoughts, she actually doesn't even use the term womb, as is usually translated. Rather, she says, do I still have sons in my me'eh? That is, do I still have sons in my insides? Okay. Now, continuing to show Orpah and Ruth the futility of pursuing the tradition of leverate marriage, Naomi continues with offering the intentionally absurd argument that even though she is too old to have a husband, suppose by miracle she got one. And then an even bigger miracle, even challenging the one of Abraham's wife, Sarah, She became pregnant in her old age. 
would the two girls be willing to wait until that happened? And then wait even longer for the sons to be born and then grow up to marriageable age so that they could marry, those two sons could marry the two widows and then give them children. Now understand that it was not unusual for a widow to wait for the younger brother of, a, of her deceased husband, a brother that was perhaps still a fairly young child, to grow up and marry her and get her pregnant. However, the situation in this particular case was a real gray area. All right? After all, Naomi was also a widow. All right? So whoever might marry Naomi and father Naomi's babies would not be the same father as the father of Naomi's deceased sons. Thus, at best, Naomi's hypothetical children would only be half-brothers of the deceased husbands. And whether that even qualified as proper levirate marriage is debatable. So, the, the possibility of employing levirate marriage to solve these girls' problem is just out of the question, if not irrational. Now, bottom line, in verse 13, Naomi says, Know my daughters... On your behalf, I feel very bitter that the hand of Adonai has gone out against me. Her argument finally hit home. And reality broke through all that emotion. And so they all started weeping profusely. And Orpah knew what she must do. And so she kissed Naomi goodbye. Now as I mentioned last week, in that era, a kiss was not so much a symbol of affection. Rather, it literally meant either hello or goodbye, depending on the situation. Thus, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew in this passage, doesn't actually say, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. It merely says, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. The goodbye is understood, as the reason for the kiss. Now, we also get this, this first hint in this passage of Naomi's attitude about her own condition. She's bitter. And God intentionally caused her bitterness. That's her attitude. And a few verses from now, this thought gets picked up on, and we're going to talk about it a little more, because it's a challenging notion for modern Christians, to be sure. Well, a hint of another kind is also presented to us and it goes back to what I told you early on that this story is actually all about Naomi and her plight as an aged childless now widow and in the same statement where she answered her own rhetorical question with an emphatic no my daughters about whether the girl should wait and hope that Naomi finds a husband and then miraculously has a couple of boy children who could grow up and marry him, she says she feels very bitter that the hand of God has gone out against her. Well, the hint is this, that it is even more of a disadvantage and serious problem for her that there is no reasonable chance for a Leverite marriage for these daughters-in-law. That is, for them, because these girls do have options. 
You see, the girls can go home and be cared for by their families and in time find new husbands. But for Naomi, the only real hope she has is for some kind of levirate marriage to happen for those two girls. Because that would give her sons, technically grandsons, to care for her. It wouldn't have been at all out of the realm of possibility for the girls to marry one of Elimelech's brothers, the daughters-in-law's uncles, assuming Elimelech had brothers. And if they did, and they produced sons, then in the ancient Middle Eastern way of thinking, these sons would become the grandchildren of Naomi's and as obligated to care for her as they would be for their own parents. Now this might sound very convoluted and complicated to us. Okay? But it was well understood and normal for the society of that era. Okay? So the thing is that Naomi was very bitter that all these circumstances lined up to conspire against her having any hope at all for a decent life from here forward. So Orpah turns and tearfully leaves to go home to Mama, back in her Moabite hometown. Now, did Orpah do something wrong or selfish or evil in leaving Naomi and going back? Not at all. It would be unfair and untrue to say that she was disloyal or uncaring or, or had committed some kind of sin. Okay. Not only did she do what Naomi ins- seriously insisted that she do, she did what was perfectly reasonable in response to her situation. Orpah did not make a bad choice. But, from the vantage point of history, she could have made a better one. She could have followed Naomi and trusted in a God she knew very little about and attached herself to a people she knew about even less. Instead, she went home to her people, the Moabites. Her people worshipped Kamosh. So essentially, she unknowingly put her fate back into the hands of a false god. Now, while I don't want to go too far in drawing a comparison, Orpah's decision affords us a good picture, I think, of how it is that people can walk right up to the brink of accepting the commission of the God of Israel and His Son Yeshua and then not take the final step because there's another road to follow. And it is the natural, if not the easier one. It is not an evil road necessarily. It just doesn't lead to the true God and his plan for us. You know, there is an interesting um, parallel to this narrative about Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth in the New Testament book of Matthew. Let me read it for you. Don't go there. Matthew 8.19. This is one you've all heard. A Torah teacher approached and said to him, 
meaning Jesus, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Yeshua said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds flying about have nests, but the Son of Man has no home of his own. And another of the disciples said to him, Sir, first let me go and bury my father. But Yeshua replied, Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Now we don't know for certain what choices these two men made when Yeshua told them what they must do and how uncertain life was going to be for them in following him. But the point is that this little episode is so reflective of the Naomi story. The men, like Ruth and Orpah, insist on following this extremely godly man, Yeshua, who is God, but he warns them off. And he says, he really has no good prospects of comfort and plenty ahead to share with them. The one makes the statement that he will follow Yeshua right then and there. The other of them says, well, he'd like to follow Jesus, but, but he needs to return home for a while. With no other information given, it's probably reasonable to suspect that the first one did go with Jesus, like Ruth did go with Naomi, and the second returned home to bury his father, choosing Orpah's route. They would not have, either one of them would not have done an evil thing not to follow Messiah as part of his team. They would not have done a wrong thing. But the better thing would have been to drop everything and go with him. And by the way, while we tend to spiritualize this event in Matthew and make it that the choice of following Yeshua was essentially a choice between salvation and no salvation, that is not the context or what was intended. Okay, Rather it was whether they would leave their current life behind and travel with him and serve as his itinerant disciples. There is no reason to believe that they did not trust him as Messiah. It was their level of commitment and translating that commitment to action that was the issue in that story. You see that? Okay. And frankly, everyone listening to this needs to ask him or herself if they merely have a passive trust in Yeshua as Messiah or if in response to that trust they're willing to commit to a whole new path that may not lead them to where they think they want to go or that even improves their earthly lot. Orpah was like the man who felt he needed to go home to bury his father. Ruth was like the other man who said unconditionally, I'll follow you, Messiah, wherever you go. And so this leads us right into one of the most eloquent, spiritually meaningful, yet elegantly simple series of statements we are likely to read in the Bible. Okay. 
After Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, Naomi tries one last time to get Ruth to follow suit and says, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her God. Go back. Go back after your sister-in-law. Ruth will have none of it. And it settles the matter once and for all. Let's reread Ruth 115 through 118. She, meaning Naomi, said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Go back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't press me to leave you and stop following you. For wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There, I will be buried. May Adonai bring terrible curses upon me. And worse ones as well, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Ruth makes six promises to Naomi and then seals it with a vow. First, is that where Naomi goes, Ruth will go. Second, is that wherever Ruth stays, meaning lives, she'll stay. Third, Naomi's people will become Ruth's people. And fourth, Naomi's God will become Ruth's God. Fifth, where Naomi dies, Ruth will die. And finally, wherever Naomi chooses to be buried, Ruth will wants to be buried alongside of her. Ruth essentially made a covenant with Naomi and then bound it with an oath. May, and the oath was, may Yehovah bring terrible curses on me and worse ones as well if anything but death separates you and me. Okay. I know the complete Jewish Bible says may Adonai bring terrible curses and most other translations will say may the Lord bring terrible curses but the original Hebrew invokes God's formal name Yehovah. Now this is significant because Ruth has sworn by the God of the Hebrews not the God of the Moabites that's her native nationality. This shows in whom Ruth truly believed, in whom her allegiance was given, and in whom she rejected Chemosh. The phrase, may Yehovah bring terrible curses on me, and more, is a rather standard formula for invoking the punishment of God should the promises be broken. And in fact, we'll find that exact same phrase used seven times in the books of Samuel and Kings. Now while on the surface, and without doubt as Ruth meant it, and Naomi understood it, Ruth was committing both her social life to the people of Israel, and her religious life to the God of Israel. But there's something deeper happening here. Using modern terms... Now, uh, um, Ruth 
converted. Okay? She became an Israelite. And yet as we move through this short story, there's a certain mystery to all this. Okay. An important element of this narrative is how a Gentile became an Israelite and just what all that entailed. Now what fascinates me is that we have here a marvelous picture of how to this day a person forsakes everything to become part of Israel. It is symbolic of every Gentile who has come to faith through Israel's God. And at least one of the keys to understanding this mystery is that Orpah went back to her people and her God while Ruth went forward to Naomi's people and Naomi's God. A people and their God are connected whether we like it or not and whether we'll admit it or not. Ruth has shown us the way. But unfortunately, the largest bulk of the church has chosen to stick or go back to its Moabitish past. Gentiles want the salvation and nearness of the God of Israel, but we don't want Israel. Of the six commitments made by Ruth to Naomi, the modern church only agrees with one. Your God will be my God. But the church also says to Israel and to the Jewish people, although I want your God, I will not go where you go. I will not stay where you stay. You will not be my people. I will not die where you die. I will not be buried where you are buried. How might this story of Ruth that the church rightfully loves have worked out had she adopted that theology? Because indeed we, as my brethren, we are faced with two entirely opposing and irreconcilable theologies here. When we compare the one in the first chapter of Ruth with the most prevalent contemporary church doctrines today. One says that Gentiles can have the God of Israel for our own outside of Israel's covenants, outside of God's people, and be under our own Gentile terms. Okay? The other says that the people and their God are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. The theology of Ruth says that to submit to the God of Israel means to cleave to the people of Israel. It means our fates are bound together both from a historic past and a prophetic future. When Ruth came to Israel with Naomi, she willingly left her Gentile ways behind and went forward eyes wide open into a new reality of which she had little knowledge. The church has brought its Gentile ways along with us 
has little or no interest in learning the ways of God's people and even has taken the extreme position that as Gentiles, we're more God's people than Moses' Israelites are. I mean, can you imagine Ruth following Naomi into Bethlehem, insisting she wants Israel's God, and then coming with the attitude that her Moabite ways are superior to the ways of God's set-apart people, and in fact, she's replaced them. That, my friends, is the predominant position of the mainstream modern church towards Israel and the Jewish people, and it is nothing less than a catastrophe. And it all falls to believers like you and me to do what we can to right these wrongs. To restore the entire Word of God to its rightful place within Christianity and to bring the good news of the Jewish Messiah to His Jewish brethren. It falls upon us to comfort His people. Join them in spirit. Ask them for forgiveness of our treatment of them. Let me conclude this thought with one final statement. I've spoken to you on a couple of occasions about the very different, although closely connected, matter of faith versus faithfulness. Of the six commitments that Ruth made to Naomi, only one was about faith. All the rest were about faithfulness. Ruth declaring that your God will be my God is a declaration of faith. But the other five commitments are expressions of that faith. And the expression of that faith in deed and action is called faithfulness. We have millions of us today and over the centuries who have had a deep faith but far fewer who have lived our lives in faithfulness. Now verse 18 shows that the elderly widow Naomi simply couldn't deflect any longer such a stunning, impassioned covenant that Ruth unilaterally made with her. And how unusual that must have been for for those times and in that culture. You know, in a patriarchal society, here we have a woman choosing another woman. When in an era where all hope that a woman had of sustenance and family and prosperity and protection and comfort and fulfillment rested on males... Here we have a God-inspired story of a woman who preferred to give up such hope in favor of helping an old woman who had no such hope even available to her. Together they journeyed back to Naomi's home in Beit Lechem of Judah. It was a very arduous journey of around 75 miles. And one must wonder how Naomi could have survived it without Ruth. The plateaus of Moab, where they left from, were at an elevation of around 3,500 feet and the hills leading up to Bethlehem over 2,500. 
After descending those rugged trails, crossing the Jordan River at probably the best and most known fording spot at Jericho, the next phase of their trek would have been the worst. Anyone who's been to Israel will remember the buses and trucks slowly crawling their way up that long and winding road that you take from Jericho, that's more than 800 feet below sea level, up to the hills of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. There are no springs, no food, and it's mostly desert conditions all along the way. But somehow, by God's grace, those two women made it. When the two arrived in Beit Lechem, it caused a rather major stir. Let's read about that to finish out the chapter. We're going to read verses 19 through the end. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Beit Lechem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole city was stirred with excitement over them. The women asked, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she answered. Call me Marah. Because Shaddai has made my life very bitter. I went out full and Adonai has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Adonai has testified against me. Shaddai has afflicted me. This is how Naomi returned with Ruth, the woman from Moab, her daughter-in-law, accompanying her from the plains of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That the whole city was stirred with excitement over the arrival of Naomi as a figure of speech. And it merely means that a great portion of it, not 100% all, turned out. But even more, the verb used to refer to the reaction of the whole city, and that verb is whom, in, in Hebrew, which means an excited uproar is conjugated in the feminine plural. In other words, it was the women of the city who noticed Naomi and approached her, not so much the men. Now remember, this is a woman-oriented story. And the women came up to her saying, can this be Naomi? Now this is a rhetorical question. They knew full well it was Naomi. It was just an expression of surprise. Further, it's not that they actually asked this of Naomi. They didn't They weren't trying to confirm her identity. It was more the tone of their conversation among themselves as they saw her approach and they could hardly believe their eyes that she was back. But in response to the rather joyful astonishment of the women of Bethlehem towards her, people who probably never expected to see her again, Naomi tells them not to call her Naomi any longer, but rather Marah. Now, recalling that her name, Naomi, means pleasant, she tells them not to refer to her character or countenance as pleasant any longer because now she is Marah. She is bitter. What is more surprising is what the stated cause of her bitterness is. God. This is where things can get a little bit dicey. For Christians. Because Naomi makes it clear that her understanding is 
that the God of Israel has with full divine intention caused her intractable condition of poverty and hopelessness. Very interestingly, Naomi calls God Shaddai. That is the original Hebrew in this instance. An epithet for God we haven't read in a long time in the Torah. It is confidently thought now that Shaddai means mountain. And so the earliest name or title or epithet used for God in the Bible of El Shaddai literally meant God of the mountain. Or more technically, chief or highest God of the mountain. Shaddai was undoubtedly just a contraction of El Shaddai that was used in certain circumstances by some in Ruth's era or maybe Maybe it was actually by the ear of the author of the book of Ruth. We don't know. The thing is, that just like so often in the English language, the sum of the words doesn't necessarily mean what they literally say when they're used as an expression. For instance, don't let the cat out of the bag has nothing to do with cats or bags. Wow, that's pretty cool isn't referring to temperature. Don't cry over spilt milk doesn't mean to avoid tears if you knock over the milk carton. Shaddai literally meant mountain, but because the chief deity always occupied the highest spot on the highest mountain, to say that Shaddai caused Naomi's trouble was much like saying the irresistible God. The most powerful of all the gods caused it. And thus there was no court of appeals. Naomi says that Shaddai made her life bitter. She went out, she left Bethlehem full, but Yehovah brought her back empty. That is, she actually switches, in the original Hebrew, from the very dramatic Shaddai... Now she uses God's formal name. And more she says that Yehovah has testified against her. And then she switches back and says that Shaddai has inflicted her. It's merely a way to get across the fact that she was powerless before the God of the cosmos and that there is no stopping the curse of emptiness that she bears once Yehovah has decided to place it upon her. But here's where we deal with some more theology. We modern Christians tend to be rather schizophrenic over how we see the Lord as he deals with our lives. On the one hand, we like to say that God controls every aspect of our existence. But when something bad happens, it's the devil. We say that with the advent of Christ, the Lord only afflicts his people with mercy and loving kindness, so the bad things in our lives are either natural repercussions or demonic, or they're human in source. That's not the theology of the Older Testament. And I would say with confidence that it's not the theology of Yeshua either. Rather, it's the doctrines of men who wish only to recognize God's attributes as the most pleasant ones. 
Okay. Naomi and the characters of the Bible from beginning to end had no such delusions. Okay. How often I've heard the statement from the mouths of wonderful pastors. I've said it. That the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Okay. But apparently we don't necessarily mean it or believe it. Because if something bad happens as a result of one's sin, then we invoke the standard statement that God doesn't punish anybody who is His. That the Lord gives and takes away is really all Naomi is stating here. She went out full. She came back empty. She says it with no hypocrisy. She understands that if God really does control everything, that whether she has plenty or she has nothing, it's all from his hand. That's a tough one. You see, the Old Testament in particular exposes what I like to call a theology of complaint. Okay. As a person under God's covenants, there was no such thing as luck or happenstance. Everything is under God's purview and providence. Many times a Bible character would have terrible things happen to them. And guess what? They'd fully assign it to God. Okay? And often they complain to one another or directly to God about it. And you know what? In general, the Lord doesn't seem to see such direct complaint as wrong. He doesn't seem offended by it. That said, it's one thing to complain about your situation and the deep pain you're in and that you don't understand it and even I don't like it one bit. But it's quite another to confront God and tell Him He's wrong or that He's erred or He's treating you unfairly he has no right to do what he's doing. Do you see the difference there? Naomi, of course, was expressing the former viewpoint and so was doing nothing wrong and she didn't have a bad attitude nor was she being disobedient or unfaithful to Jehovah. She was but acknowledging that the source of her troubles was God's decision. Anybody remember the book of Job? And she was suffering under his hand for whatever reasons. She was in no way challenging God's motives or his authority to do it. Frankly, I find that refreshing and theologically dead on. Just as we cannot accept God without accepting his people, neither can we accept the kind part of God without acknowledging the severe. Well, this this chapter concludes with tying up the loose ends that indeed Ruth was with Naomi when she arrived at Bethlehem and that they arrived at the time of the barley harvest which would have been around April by our calendars but it also puts it at about the time of the biblical feast of Shavuot Christian Pentecost and this is at the heart of why the book of Ruth is read today in synagogues as a tradition throughout the world on the occasion of Shavuot. Okay, we'll start chapter 2 next week.